Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential, both the art of telling and the journey of listening. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. Here, you'll listen to deep dive conversations and scenes from audiobooks. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite storyteller. This is episode 31. Our featured author is Jewel Selbo and her new crime mystery, 10 Days. But we're going to start by talking about her background in screenwriting, because I was fascinated to learn that she had written textbooks about screenwriting while teaching at NYU and UCLA. It covers women screenwriters from 1896 to 2015, which is when it was published. I wrote down 1896. I was like, wow, this is a comprehensive history. And the fact that it was international fascinated me that you had looked at storytellers from all around the world. Yes. And there's amazing film history in so many nations. And then um, there are some nations that didn't get access to cameras and storytelling in film for a long time. But once that was in their hands, people love to tell story with film. Why did you choose to do it just from a women's perspective? Was that also something that took some countries longer than others to have female screenwriters or? Because you couldn't make money as a film screenwriter in 1900. People were just making them, but it wasn't a business. So Mm. men were not interested. It wasn't until films became money-making propositions which was really about the 1920s. Um, So there were a lot of women in Italy and America, fabulous women, filmmakers, storytellers, screenwriters, who were very much pushed out after uh, the men realized, oh, I can make a lot of money making films. There was a wonderful woman named Lois Weber, who was one of the early female screenwriters, directors, And she did such amazing camera work and all the guys were copying her. Who was the audience for this? Like, were they put up in movie houses at that point? Uh, Yeah, they were called Nickelodeons. They started in those little machines that you would put your face in and just, you know, one person at a time would crank it and watch it. And then they eventually started projecting them. Like the Lumiere brothers in France were the ones who really, really pushed the projection And so then uh, they would be done, you know, in vaudeville houses and in churches and, you know, in the backyard, they would put up a sheet. Uh, You know, the very early people were writer directors. They had a story. Mm. They wanted to tell it. They cast it. They shot it. They edited it. They presented it. Um, And then the studio system, when the studios started gathering force, the writers were put under contract. And you basically were told, uh, we want a horror story, we want a drama, we want a melodrama, we want this, we want that. Go off to your little bungalow and write it. So it became really a machine. And then it wasn't until the 50s, thanks to Betty Davis and Olivia de Havilland and some of those wonderful actors, that the studio system was broken up. 
so yeah. that people could be hired by different studios and have a choice, more of a choice of what they were going to do. Fascinating. Well, and so your work in education, but then you also really, you actively work with Columbia Pictures and Paramount and Universal and HBO and the Jim Henson Company and Walt Disney Studios. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me some of your experience with that, having a career in that field. Well, I started as a playwright. So the professor stuff and the film historian stuff and writing the textbooks came way later. I started as a playwright, putting on, you know, plays when I was a kid in my garage. And <laughs> um, I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota. But I had that teacher in eighth grade. His name was Ted Larson. He was a big film person. He just loved films. He knew everything about film. He had an amazing personal collection of old films that he would show all of us who were like crazy about them too. The Fargo school system paid for his PhD at the University of Kansas, I think it was. And part of the deal was he had to come back and teach junior high for X amount of years to help pay back. And so I benefited from that. And wow. making films and writing them and editing them and shooting them. And it was so much fun. And then went to college and um, majored in theater. When I moved to New York after graduate school, I had a play, a couple of plays done off, off Broadway. Somebody had come seen one of the plays and offered me a job writing for a daytime soap. So that was my first writing for money job. It was great. It was fantastic. Um, in New York. Okay, 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 wait. So what made it fantastic? I'm in my mind of course thinking about daytime soap opera from a writer perspective. Tell me what made that fantastic. Well, it was fantastic to get paid to do something <laughs> that I love to do. And again, it was going back to the story. And as you know, daytime dramas, they just go at a snail's pace because yes. Research has shown that people only really watch two days a week. And so yes. the story can't go fast because they can't, they won't keep up. So it was a challenge because it's really hard sometimes to kind of write the same scene yes. over and over again and try to make it feel like it's new. Yes. But at the same time, then my agent um, called me up and said, George Romero, you know, the man who did Night of the Living Dead and oh wow, yeah, and some of those great horror movies was uh, starting a show, Tales from the Dark Side, and they were looking for story ideas. So my agent said, "Just write up some story ideas, and we'll see if we can sell them." So I wrote them up. They bought some. Those jobs took me also to LA because they were shot half in New York and half in Los Angeles. So I started meeting people in LA. So then I moved to LA and and actually became a full time writer which thank goodness I had a great time and it was fantastic. And I was a working Hollywood screenwriter for, you know, 20 years and some. It's amazing. I wondered if there was any hint of DRAMO in that early work. From the very beginning, have you had female protagonists like this or is D a new invention for you? <laughs> no, um, you know, uh, 10 Days is, I think, the book that I've always been kind of waiting to write because I don't think, I don't think mystery, crime mysteries get as much credibility as they should, even though they're some of the favorite go-to reading of so many people. 
I mean, most of us are lucky enough to not face crime in our everyday life. And so in a way, it kind of reminds us there's another side of life. Mm-hmm. And then there's the puzzle. It's getting the bad guy. It's getting the evil element. We have these people, these policemen and, and private eyes and other things who are, who are actually testing themselves and putting themselves in danger to make our existence safer. So there's yeah. all these wonderful parts to it. So it was always something I wanted to do, but I thought it was going to be too difficult. And so I said, well, if I don't do it now, better, right. better get started, especially yes. since it's 10 days and I'm working right now on nine days yes. and I'm going to go 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Okay. So let's explain for people what you mean by that. So the name of this novel is 10 days and which means its format is all of the action takes place in 10 days. That's how you've written it. Right. And so uh, D. Rommel, my main character, is a policewoman who is on medical leave. She uh, has an on-the-job injury. She lost the lower part of her left leg. And she's in rehab. She's trying to figure out what she wants to do. She doesn't know whether she wants to go back to the police force. Um, So right now she's working for her godfather, who is a private investigator in Portland, Maine. And she's just doing his books. But he has to leave town. An old friend of his comes and says, my daughter has disappeared. All I know is she sent me a note. She's going to get married in 10 days. She's never had a boyfriend. I don't know why she's getting married. And he's a very rich He's a tech entrepreneur, and so um, there's a lot of money at stake. There's a project that they've been working on that's also at stake. So he says, i got to find my daughter. And Dee Rommel says, well, maybe she just fell in love and she wants to get married. Maybe you should leave her alone. (laughs) And um, he said, well, when she was growing up, we used to go to an island off uh, Portland, Maine called Shabig. And it's Shabig Island, beautiful island. And... um, we would spend, you know, some of the summer there. That was the time when they were really close as dad and little girl. And he said, if you ever need me, honey, for anything, if you're ever in trouble, get the word Shabig to me and I will be there. So the her wedding announcement that she sent to her dad was, dad, getting married, June 22nd, Shabig. So Dee has to figure out what's going on. Okay. That's a great spot to stop and listen to a scene from the book. Before we do, I'm excited to share Jules Publisher is offering a discount code just for Desideratum podcast listeners. You'll just enter DP15, that's DP15, at pandamoonpublishing.com for 15% off the book. All right, here's your scene from Chapter 1, where you get to meet D and get a hint at the novel's second storyline. This is 10 Days, D. Rommel Mystery, number one. Written by Jewel Selbo. I put the heel of my hand on the bedside table and muscle myself upwards. I balance on my good leg, slip my half leg into my eyewalk and tighten the straps. Count a slow five the time needed to focus on balance. 
Bert bounds off the bed and lands on his four good legs, sniffs around the bedroom. My open-cuff crutches rest against the folded-up wheelchair. My vacuum system, shock-absorbing light-good prosthesis is on the top of my dresser. My peg leg, tossed on a chair. I'm aware my bedroom looks like that of a woman who can't make up her mind. But it's not the what-to-wear dilemma. It's the how-will-I-travel-today question. My prosthetist tells me it'll all feel second nature soon. I tell him that it's been over a year and ask how long does soon take. Bert gives a sharp bark, doesn't want me to forget him. Okay, come on, boy. We move through my darkened living room to the kitchen door that opens to stone steps that lead to my backyard. Bert slips out into the cool June morning and races up the steps to the lone tree he favors for bladder relief. I prop the door open and call after him. Be ready in 30. I gotta get to the office. Bert's food sits in a plastic storage box on my kitchen counter. My boss packaged its contents for me, not trusting me to properly feed his best buddy. I thumb through the pre-measured, all-organic portions, find the right day and date on the plastic baggie, dump it into the bowl. I clomp step into the living room and pull back the curtains on my eye-level windows. A basement apartment is not usually on the list of must-live places, but it's good for me. Out the long, low windows are grassy tips of lawn, a quiet street, and a view straight out to Casco Bay. Day boats head out to bring in the catch of the day. Bert pads in for his breakfast. I head back to the kitchen, lock the back door, and appreciate the sound of the latch bolt sliding into place. Taking a shower, I tell Bert, as if he cares about anything but lapping up his food. I keep my showers short to defy the natural swelling of tissue in wet heat, then step out of the white-tiled stall, unstrap the eyewalk, lean my weight back on the sink, and use a towel to give a rough massage to the half-leg. My hairdryer, on top speed, attacks any remaining moisture. I grab the cuff crutches, catch a foggy glimpse of myself in the full-length mirror on the back of the door. Too thin, maybe ten pounds underweight for my nearly six-foot frame. My ass is flat. Typical white girl. No matter how many curls or lunges, high and rounded glutes escape me. I contemplate my lone, long leg and wonder if I'll ever look familiar to myself. I dress from shoulder to crotch, then pull on my liner and my two-ply stump sock and don my light good, use the vacuum pump to tighten the fit, slip into my jeans, add a high-topped Nike boot over my plastic foot with its anatomically correct toes, and a right boot to the foot that can feel. Bert and I move down the hill into the bustle of town. There's a crisp morning chill in the air. We pass Victorian houses whose rear windows look out over the bay, past the 19th-century brick buildings that were once machine shops geared towards boat builders. The high-end refurbishing of Portland's historic district has pushed them out. A Silver Sea cruise ship is in place at the docking terminal. 
Its gangway is weighed down with passengers as they move off the ship. Some will get on a bus to the massive L.L. Bean store, located in the middle of discount venues in Freeport. Some will wander Portland for the day, and then get back on their ship, and be gone by sunset. I grab a takeout coffee at Neva's Cafe on Thames Street. Your dog. The voice comes from behind me. The accent is German. Excuse me? He wears a baseball cap, sunglasses, and a nylon runner's jacket. Zero body fat. Binoculars peek out from a pocket. The dog rope stretched here. It is blocking my entry to get coffee. Bert sniffs a fire hydrant, as far away from me as he can go on his leash. Sorry. There's a bird-watching book in the German's hand. I slip past him and give a gentle tug to Bert, signaling him that we're on our way again. At Gretchen's doggy daycare, my friend's staring at her phone. She forces a smile, but she's frazzled. What's up? Trying to reach Carla. She moves around the counter to greet Bert. Hey there, big silly guy. You come to play? She opens the gate, and Bert, the streaking furball, speeds through to the play area already populated by canine slobberers. So rude. He sleeps with me, I make him breakfast, let him use my outdoor toilet, and not even a later lady. You're good with a dog. Stop trying to convert me. Gretchen pulls her watch cap lower on her head. Something's different. What are you hiding? She takes off her cap to reveal lavender-streaked hair in a new pixie cut. I thought shorter would make me look more fun. Someone should have told me it makes my face look fatter. You don't have a fat face. I'll never have cheekbones like you. And you have a real chin. Mine looks like a marshmallow attached to a jaw. Is this low self-esteem day? Gretchen and I have known each other since first grade. She's getting more and more fretful about what she calls her future with a capital F. Gretchen grabs a cart packed with thick rubber toys. All I want is a lifelong partner who will binge on TV shows with me, want to have heave-ho at least four times a week, sleep next to me the whole night, and get my name right in the morning. There's probably someone out there fitting that description. For you, too. You're worse than my mother. I study her new haircut. You know what? That short hair does make you look like a bedroom super-athlete. She tosses a dozen brightly colored balls to the happy barkers. That's the idea. But I'm thinking of freezing some eggs just in case. She moves back to the counter. Carla told me Billy Payer wants to see her so he can apologize. She didn't fall for that, did she? For her... He's got some magic action. I shake my head. We'd met Carla at University of Southern Maine. She never declared her major, but we kidded her that she was the head of the Department of Party. She opened her own hair salon on India Street a few years ago. 
She's always after me to donate my straight locks so she can make a strawberry blonde wig from human hair. I'll guilt her into meeting us for a drink at Sparrow's. Six? Gretchen writes the time on her wall calendar as a reminder. She's not going to listen. D, we have to try. He's dangerous. You had me from day one, and I went from day to day, uh, not knowing which direction these sort of levels of puzzle were going to go. So it was really a treat to Good. to follow along and um, and to discover things with D. You know, she was a fun person to be discovering things with. Yeah. Was she based on someone from your past, someone that you know? Um, yeah, no, she hasn't been in my mind as a character. Um, I just started writing. I liked the voice that was starting to come out of her. And yes. I liked her dilemma. And I liked how she she does keep people at a distance. She's got a big chip on her shoulder. So she can say a lot of the things that sometimes I'm saying in my head, but I don't say to people. <laughs> and so, um, so, yeah, she's just kind of sprung forth. Oh, you do touch on some current big picture items like our use of technology. You have a conversation in the book talking about some of the ways that some of these technologies can be so beneficial to humanity and yet sort of the flip side of how it can be used in ways that are that hurt humanity. Yeah, I think that's what we're all struggling with in this digital and tech world, um, because there are so many things that can help people's lives be better. But then there's that invasion of privacy that I get into in the book that D, my main character, finds um, debilitating. And, um, and she finds it harmful for herself, her client, and how it can be used and flipped. And so I think it's a dilemma that I don't know how it'll go away. And also, I've been reading a lot about some of the work that's been done at MIT in how robotics is really coming to the fore with yes. some of the amputation things. And I'm going to like play around with that, I hope. Yeah, there's an element of AI and robotics. I mean, not only do you touch on technology and, and our, our efforts to balance convenience and privacy. I thought it made it feel very current too. You know, there's something kind of old school about her, but then there's also this grounding in right now in her injury and how she's getting around and in these, these sort of nuggets of corporate and tech that you wove through it through the client. I really liked that. Oh, good. Great. Yeah. I always like to ask people for you, if you were going to articulate to somebody, you know, this is an essential thing to me, this is most important, or this is most essential or fundamental, what would you say it is? Yeah, as an author, what's essential for me is to be true to the character. I want there to be a truth. I want there to be authenticity. My husband and I were talking just the other day about uh, a book that's I know this author and she writes beautifully. The sentences are just gorgeous. And the pictures that she paints are just fantastic. And we were talking about it. And I said, well, 10 days, nine days, eight days, they're never going to read like that because that's not D. Because mm -hmm. I don't write 
I'm not like, I don't write beautiful sentences, but if I happen to like, you know, put one together, I go, oh man, that's kind of nice. And then I go, eh, I got to cut that because that's not the, you know? So I kind of, I really love when a character is true to themselves. And I like to, I think pacing is really important to me. I want everything to be a page turner. And um, I guess just spinning a yarn and, and, and having people get something out of it besides just the plot. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to go plot and beyond. I like that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you would know as you're writing that you would have D so fully formed as a person that you would know right away she wouldn't say that. She She wouldn't even think it that way. (laughs) She wouldn't think it that way. She would think it this way, you know. She has a real, um, she also has a real sense of loyalty to her friends. She has a sense of justice for the people that she cares about, you know, and that sort of deep sense of what's right and wrong. And you talked about that a little bit at the beginning when you talked about people that even just go into these, these lines of work where they're, they're really drawn to right and wrong and a sense of justice. And she has that, that is definitely an inherent part of her character. Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's something that's really important to me too. I think that. Um, I read something way back when about, you know, what drives us and most people are motivated by either um, love, justice, respect, security, or power. Mm. And I, when I thought, when I was writing uh, D, I thought, no, for her, it's justice. Respect is in there. She wants to be respected. But justice is so important to her. And so I think that, you know, finding that core for the character in the big psychology kind of thing is helpful. You can find out more about Jewel Selbo and stay in touch with her through her website. I'll put a link in the show notes. And please take advantage of the generous discount offered by Pandamoon Publishing to Desideratum podcast listeners. DP15 at pandamoonpublishing.com. Thanks to Alan and Zara Kramer at Pandamoon Publishing for their generosity. And thank you for listening. <laughs>